I am a loser. Uh, that doesn't sound good. Hang on, let me try that again. Uh, I am a person who frequently loses stuff. There we go. That's, that's much nicer sounding. I'm a person who frequently loses stuff. I have a bad habit of things going missing uh, around me. I will misplace small things like my wallet or my keys. I will misplace big things like, like this robe or yeah, a child. Uh, <laughs> things go missing uh, around me. And uh, so with how often I end up losing losing stuff, it's probably not wrong to call myself a loser. Sometimes the thing I, things I lose aren't even physical. Sometimes I will lose an opportunity. Sometimes I will lose a friendship. And so objectively calling myself a loser is not necessarily incorrect. But I'd like to be less of a loser. And so, how might I go about doing that? Probably the best first place to start would be for me to identify why is it that I lose things in the first place? What is it that's, that makes something likely to get lost around me? Well, one thing, I do have a tendency to lose more small things. If they're not significant, then I tend to uh, stop paying attention and lose them. If there's something that I don't care very much about or if I'm not actually actively paying attention to it, then they're much more likely to go astray. If I were to focus on them a little bit more, they'd be much less likely to vanish on me. Now, I will say this, though. Even if something is small, and even if it wasn't very important to me a few seconds ago, the second that I realize that I have lost something, that is now the most important thing in the world. I will drop everything in order to try to find the thing that just a little bit ago I didn't care enough about to even keep track of the thing that I just lost. Oftentimes I realize how much I actually needed that thing that I wasn't thinking about anymore. Our text from Revelation talks about losing something. Now, all these things that I've already talked about losing, these are possessions that I hang on to very loosely. Like, how do I, to the extent that we own anything that is temporary in a temporary world. Our text today looks at the stuff we actually own, the stuff that we actually have. And that makes the threat pretty significant that by not valuing what I've got, one day I might not have it and discover that it was completely vital. Our text today is taken from the book of Revelation. Note that it's Revelation, not Revelations. There's no S in uh, Revelation. Revelation is kind of a mysterious, wonky type of book. It can be challenging to read. So I like to go into any text kind of thinking about some things that I might want to try to pick out. So when we're looking at our text today, let's ask ourselves a couple of questions. First off, let's look at what is it that's at stake in these verses, and how is it that we avoid losing the thing that's at stake? Our text today is taken from the third chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation. We'll start reading at verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. 
Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in, my, in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the text starts right here with a warning that the world is heading for a trial. And in these end times, as we've discovered, we, found we are in the end times, uh, there are plenty of trials that we're facing. The word that's being translated trial here is kind of interesting. It's the same word that we find in the Lord's Prayer for temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Well, that's, a, that's creepy because we're, we're praying specifically in the Lord's Prayer that God would steer us clear of this exact thing. And now in these verses, it's saying the world is heading in exactly that direction. We're going to crash directly in that uh, direction. Now, there's comfort here, too. Because in the Lord's Prayer, it's a unique kind of prayer. Jesus taught it to us, and when we pray it, the requests that we make, the petitions that we make of God in there, he answers with a yes. That's echoed in these verses. It says that he will keep us from... Uh, from these trials. Now, something is at stake in these verses during these terrible, difficult uh, times. He says, hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. The thing at stake right here is our crown. What's that referring to? God seeks to make you an heir of heaven. He is the king of heaven. He wants you to be a part of his family. That makes you his child. That makes you a prince of heaven. You are heavenly royalty. So the threat here is big. Your crown as heavenly royalty is the thing at stake. Uh, the thing at stake ultimately, if we really want to break it down, is our salvation. So the stakes are as high as they could possibly be. What is it that happens? What is it that we need in order to keep our salvation from being lost? We have to hold on to what we have. That is ambiguous sounding. What exactly is it that we have? When we're objective about it, not really, not really all that much. We really only have the illusion of ownership over most things. Uh, even the stuff that we do think we have is going to dissolve away to nothingness, or if it outlasts us, it goes to other people, or it rots and is forgotten. There's nothing in my, the, my house, which I quote-unquote own, if it outlasts me, goes to somebody else. It's not really mine. Solomon taught us that in a very pointed way. Solomon had more of everything that anybody could ever want. He had more stuff, he had more relationships, he had more accomplishments, he had more wisdom. Anything that you might chase in this world, Solomon had more of it. And so when he says in Ecclesiastes that all of it was meaningless, that all of it was vanity, a chasing after the wind, we can really uh, take that to the bank. But he set, points something else out. There is something that outlasts 
the things of this world. Or in other words, there is something that we actually have. There's something that actually endures. Uh, when I was in seminary, I got really lucky. I was able to go on a trip to Turkey, and we went to the seven churches of Revelation uh, while we were touring through. I got to preach a sermon in Ephesus in that stadium where they were trying to get Paul stoned. It was, it, as, it was weird to have the highlight of my ministry in seminary. Uh, but uh, So it was a really cool experience while I was there. But the city is rubble. All that's happened is they've taken some things, you know, there's some bricks and columns and they've propped them back up again and they've stacked some blocks back up on top of each other so that you've got the odd wall here or there. Ephesus, a lot of work went in to creating that place and now it's barely even memories. It's garbage. It's rubble. And most of the other cities that uh, are written to in Revelation are exactly the same way. But there's something about Ephesus that still lasts right now. There's something I can even kind of lay hands on. While Paul was operating out of Ephesus, it was the first time that the Lord told him to go to Macedonia. He was supposed to go and uh, turn west and take the gospel for the very first time into Europe. I can trace the work that the church at Ephesus did in the faith directly to the faith arriving in Europe. Well, I'm of European descent. I can trace my faith through a curvy, long line back to the work that they did there. There was something permanent that they worked towards in Ephesus, a thing that lasts and the thing that we cling to, the thing through which we are brought through and out of this time of trials is faith. That changes the meaning then on some of the things that we encounter in, this, uh, in these verses. It says, because you have obeyed my command to persevere. Well, I haven't persevered. In order to be an heir of heaven, I was supposed to be perfect. But by faith... God's only begotten son and his perfect life become mine. It wasn't that I persevered. It was that he persevered for me. And by faith, that perseverance is mine. I faced a punishment for the things that I could do. It was a punishment there was no way that I could possibly handle. Death, hell, there was no way that I could stand up against what inevitably awaited me. But it wasn't my perseverance. It was Christ's perseverance over death on the cross and over the grave that by faith becomes mine. Faith is the thing that we have, the thing that we cling to. And in many ways in this world, the only thing that we actually possess. Even Christ talks about our faith as being exactly that sort of thing that we might be nervous about losing. Something small, he calls it a mustard seed, but something very important, a mustard seed that can move a mountain, something that it's easy to neglect because of its size or where it resides in our mind, but something that is so critical to us. A reward is promised here for persevering through and in 
uh, faith. It's a little bit of a weird one because the reward is tied to turning us into a building, which is kind of strange, right? It says that, uh, it'll write the, that he'll write the name of God on us, that we become a pillar in uh, the temple of God, that he'll write his new name on us. It's a neat kind of way here in Revelation of bringing together a lot of the imagery that Christ has employed throughout the uh, Bible concerning our own faith and heaven. Our hearts are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are living temples of God. In heaven, there is no such thing as a physical temple. There is no temple in the city of heaven because God is there and God is everywhere. So therefore, we are part of that temple in heaven. In the ancient world, it was really common, actually in the modern world too, when you had like a public structure to put the name of like big contributors on that structure. If you ever get a chance to go to Rome and to the Colosseum, it's covered in like personal advertisements like Magnus bought this rock uh, or, you know, what is it? The Shell Field? Shields Field. We wouldn't, be, we wouldn't do Shell Field, right? Uh, uh, across the street, right? We still put names on things for uh, big contributors. Well, who is our big contributor for heaven? God puts his own name on us. He is our great benefactor. He is the one who builds us into heaven. In heaven, that is what God has done for us. He makes permanent his investment into us and we bear his name, not as possessions, but as eternal children. Amen.